and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I am so pumped you are on here with me right now. I want you to take a moment to stop and honor yourself. Maybe you're out walking. Maybe you're wrangling some children or on your drive to work, but the fact that you are setting aside this hour for yourself and showing up for yourself is amazing. Last week, I interviewed Aggie and this episode went viral. We had over 90% growth in seven days. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely go back after this one and see if it's one that you might be interested in. I've spent most of the week reflecting on that interview wondering how can I help you more? What conversations can we have that could support you personally on your journey or throughout your own life adversity? And then I realized that a topic that we have not covered yet that could be invaluable would be chatting to someone from Lifeline, discussing what actually happens when you pick up the phone and call 131114. So I put the feelers out. And I asked a few of you, what would you like to know about Lifeline? I think we all know that we can phone them, but did you know that you could text them? Here's what people asked. What happens when someone answers? Like, what do they say? What do they ask you? Who is the person on the other end of the line? Do they get trained? Will the phone calls be escalated or will they tell anyone about our conversation? So with that in mind, I could not be happier than to introduce you to Rob Sams, the CEO of Lifeline Direct. Not only is he the CEO, he is also an on-the-ground crisis support worker. He is one of the people you may get on the other end of the line when you call up. As you will hear in this interview, Rob is a life learner. He started with an undergrad in occupational health and safety, followed by a postgrad diploma in social psychology of risk a diploma in counselling psychology, a master's in suicidology, applied psychology, and he is also the author of a book, Social Sensemaking. It's a reflective journal on how we make sense of risk. From the moment that I met Rob, I could tell he is patient, humble, kind, and incredibly gifted when it comes to understanding and working with people. We spent the first 10 minutes chatting about Rob and his background, and then we head into a conversation about what happens when you call Lifeline, followed by a conversation about suicide and some of the things we can say if we're concerned about someone. Normally, I invite an expert on every four episodes, but after last week's episode, Rob is the perfect person, and hopefully this is just the right conversation for some of you out there today. Next week, we will be returning to our normal format of challenges that change us. Let me introduce you to this genuine and very special man, Rob Sams. Welcome, Rob, to the podcast Challenges That Change Us. 
Terrific to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation today. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it because particularly over the last sort of 10 to 15 episodes, I've noticed that we've talked a lot around the mental health space and we're always putting on around Lifeline and the number that they can call. And I thought, what an opportunity to bring you on here today to talk about what it actually looks like. Let's draw back the curtains and what it looks like for you because you actually do the support crisis worker as well as being the CEO. So, you know, I think I think this is a really good opportunity for us to have a conversation that the audience can listen to and hopefully we can, you know, bridge that gap between thinking about calling and actually picking up the phone to call if that's what they need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Really looking forward to that discussion. And yeah, one of the, the things that we uh, we work really hard on at Lifeline and broadly in the sector is, you know, reducing the stigma around help seeking. So anything we can do to, to help people understand what happens when you call Lifeline or when you might contact other services as well, really happy to talk through that. Yeah, and we'll be getting into that. But I really love to start the podcast with a couple of different questions. The first one mm. is, if there was an animal that best describes you, what animal would that be and why? That's a great question. It's, it's actually really easy to answer for me. Before Lifeline, I used to run a consulting business, which was called Dolphin. And I came up with that name for a couple of reasons. One, they're fun. So dolphins are usually a lot of fun. You'll get to recognize maybe, hopefully, as we talk through this morning, that some of these things I resonate strongly with me. They hunt in packs, so they often hunt with their family. So they're really social animals. They're great communicators. They have good vision. And I think, you know, they're the kind of things that I think, if I was to think professionally in life, they're really important, but also in my personal life. You know, I think, you know, very social person, very much care about those close people to me, my family and my friends. And I think, you know, dolphins are a really good metaphor for that. Yeah. And I love when you say to, you know, have a bit of play and a bit of fun in your life, because I think particularly in the work that you do and the work that I used to do, it's very easy to feel the weight of it and the heaviness of it. And one of the ways that we can kind of still enjoy life and fight, you know, is finding that play in that. And I always think about dolphins like that as well you know they're, they're beautiful creatures absolutely beautiful absolutely and you know i live it close to the coast you know i think being part of the or close to the beach and you know, i love that it's part of my life and i think it's really important in the line of work we do and i know we'll talk about that through the podcast but it is important to have boundaries it is important to have uh, places where you can have downtime and, and just have time mm. to yourself so you know those things that i mentioned you know being close to my family and friends and having a bit of fun along the way are really good ways to sort of create those boundaries. And the other question I love to ask is, was there a place or a room when you were growing up that's a special memory for you? And what is it about that? Hmm. I think, could I be sneaky and have two answers to that? Yeah, you definitely can. <laughs> I think the first the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is definitely the backyard and playing cricket with our neighbours. So I knew you were going to say cricket. Do you know I don't know that about you, but I'm like you look like a cricketer. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> well, maybe I did when I was younger. My mates might have different views on that, but uh, I certainly <laughs> love to play cricket with the, with the neighbours. And yeah, we did the usual things as you did growing up and impersonated all the all the stars, etc. So I, I think the backyard brings great memories of growing up, and we had some good fun there. And and the other place is really anywhere in the house where I can just sit and read a book mm. you know so as I was growing up I remember there's probably one infamous photo that my mum loves to remind me about and probably puts on social media every 12 months you know of me falling asleep with a book over my head oh. 
and that was that was pretty common. And uh, yeah, I love to read. I think it's something that we all should, um, yeah, if you can get into. I think it's a great way to to just learn about the world. So I think yeah, anywhere I could sit and just read a book was a was a great place at home. And I was just thinking as you're talking, the guests can't see this, but behind you is a bookshelf, and there's like five layers of just yeah. so many books. Like I was like, wow, they're like all crammed in there, and it's like, can I fit one more book in there? <laughs> it's funny when my wife and I bought this home, and and I just looked in this one room, and and I don't know if you want to call it a study a den. It was my office at the time because I was working from home, and uh, I saw that and went. That'll do me. If you like the rest of the house, that's okay. And um, yeah, so it, it's that <laughs> special place. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, are you still hard copy books or are you um, Kindle? I can only hard copy books. I, I really struggle. I think we spend so much time on, and maybe this is just because of the last few years, so much time on screens that uh, for me, it's a hard copy book. And and I love to have a, um, this might sound a bit strange, but a relationship with a book. You know, you open it up and you ask it questions and I love to write in it and tag it and mark it. And so I think, yeah, they're the fun things about hard copy book for me. Yes. My daughter's asked me the other day, why do I get, you know, those little tabs that you put uh-huh. in? And I, I'm like, oh, because I really want to come back and visit this. And I read so many books that I know I'm going to forget. And so, I put those little tabs and write in it. And they're like, oh, can we highlight our books? I'm like, not if they're from the library. Yes. That's, that's right. I think I'm teaching bad habits with that. Yes. But it is a great way. I mean, I think it's, it's get in, you know, it's think about who's the author and where's this come from. And, you know, I think, yeah. I think it is a relationship with it. Yeah. So, you know, still a favorite spot for me. Interesting you should say that because you're actually an author. Maybe this is a beautiful time to open up and have a conversation about the book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you able to tell us a little bit about it? It's a journal, yeah? Yeah, it's a journal. I went back and you know, perhaps we'll talk about this more later on how I got there, but it went and studied social psychology. started in uh, in 2013 and it was really a way for me to get to know people and you know, I described before being a social person. It was not just people, but people in social groups. So, I studied social psychology and through that, it was challenging many of my worldviews and challenging many of much of what I'd learned before and in, in a really good way, in a way that I think is really good for learning that I was asking me lots of questions along the way that I didn't necessarily have the answers for or were different to what the way I'd viewed the world in the past. So, I actually started writing lots of blogs and publishing those because and, and most of those blogs were not answers, they were questions <laughs> and reflections of, of how I was experiencing things at the time. So, I pulled those blogs together in a, in a more coherent way and, and wrote a book and um, yeah, it's called Social Sense Making. And it's, it was a real, I suppose, cliche, but labor of love. It was, it was something that didn't feel like work or it was something to me that was really a passion at the time and it was helping my learning. So, yeah, pulling that together, trying to think about what I'd learned and put it in a yeah. way that others might get something from. So, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And at the time, I was running a consulting business and um, it was a great way to sort of introduce yourself to another version of a, of a website almost. Yeah. And the thing that I'm already hearing in the, like, I think we're only five minutes in, but is your curiosity in asking the questions. I can already hear you saying that over and over. It's like, how can we be more curious? What questions can we ask? How can we look at what's in front of us a different way? Or, you know, it's already (laughs) and we're just getting started. So maybe, Rob, it might be really nice as well to kind of go back through some of the chapters that have gotten you to where you are today because we're going to be talking a lot about Lifeline, but let's just take it back a little bit, maybe to what started this journey. Yeah, I think, you know, a good place to start is I recognise mum and dad as – 
yeah, mum and dad have, have got a strong work ethic. And, and as I look back at my life, I started studying. Uh, I first worked in health and safety was sort of my first real job beyond you know, McDonald's and pizza delivery and those kind of things. And I worked in health and safety and did a degree in Newcastle where I, I grew up. Um, and I did that while working full time and studying part time. And I just look back and go, wow, that was a big big thing to take on, but it was really a reflection of my parents. You know, they, they've worked really hard through their lives. And for me, again, it wasn't sort of, it was a labor of love. I really enjoyed what I was doing at the time and I was learning. But um, I got into health and safety and I'm always cautious when I say this, thinking it was, you know, really a helping profession. It, it was a profession that was there to prevent injuries and ill health and yeah, promote wellness in the workplace. And 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 on the whole, it is. You know, on the whole, that's that's what it's about. And particularly in the last few years, it's got a different focus, you know, or it's moved mm. to a different focus around you know, well-being and psychological safety. And, and I think that's terrific. My experience though, and I think this was really highlighted and, and amplified when I was consulting, was there's a part of it also that's about policing and just policing people's behaviours. And I got frustrated, if I'm honest, that when I was consulting around health and safety, most people wanted me to effectively copy and paste procedures so they could tell people what to do. Mm, that control, kind of almost control the situation so that things don't get out of hand as opposed to how can we help? Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's definitely places for control. You know, there's definitely place, you know, there's, there's some pretty serious stuff can happen in workplaces mm. and absolutely a place for it. But what I found missing was there was there seemed no understanding of people. And certainly the curriculum in university curriculum in health and safety at the time lacked a real understanding of people. You know, as I mentioned before, I went and studied social psychology because I was really craving that understanding of, you know, who are these people? They're not just objects in a workplace. They're actually subjects. They're actually, you know, people who think and move and some of the stuff to me wasn't explainable under the normal lens that I'd learnt through before. Well, I love hearing you say that because it processes allow us to be brilliant in our lane, but they don't necessarily allow for the differences within people's personalities or where they've come from or what. So I think that's what you're talking about there is there's these two sides to the coin and both are really important. Mm, I, I think so. And 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 what I'd learnt or what I was feeling and seeing was that a lot of the time workplaces seemed to discourage thinking, <laughs> you know, mm. so there was this, there was an absolute, you know, and I've worked in manufacturing and construction where it's really important to get things right and, and I accept that. But in the time of doing that, I think it went too far and, you know, there was a policy saying don't touch the toaster because it's hot. You know, there's almost a fascination with having absolutely no harm at all. And and this, what I'm about to say next is, can be a bit tricky, you know, I think. But the reality is that humans, you know, we, we're harmed and in our life all the time, whether that be disappointed or we're hurt through loss or mm. grief or whatever. And, you know, a world can't exist with no harm. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our best to create that environment. So, yeah, that's it's a bit tricky to get your head around, I think. But yeah, the best example I get, or let me say another thing. I think without any harm or incident or something not going quite right, it's very hard to learn. <laughs> yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think we see that in our children all the time, which we've mentioned on this podcast, is as we cotton wool our children and we don't give them the space to fall over, they don't get the space to learn what it means to fall over. It's great when we can shortcut some of those mistakes that we've learned so that people don't make it, but they still need to make their mistakes. And that's no different in a workplace. You want to harm minimization, absolutely. And I think that's what we're trying to say here. There's a tricky conversation. <laughs> we're not 
trying to say this stuff isn't important, but there's another part that perhaps can be explored a little bit further. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and it often turns into this binary kind of, you know, you're saying that, you know, how many people do you want to be hurt in the workplace? And I'd never have an answer to that. You know, it's not mm. like I want, you know, um, there's a good number to that. But I think you're right. I mean, the harm minimization, you know, it's almost the helicopter parenting is the helicopter organization. Yeah. And I just think we need to be cautious of that. You know, I remember you mentioned our kids. I remember my daughter, who's nearly 19. So I was, 10 plus years ago, I was probably longer than that. I remember picking her up from my mum's place and she'd fallen over on a skateboard and like every parent sees, you know, kids with blood all down the knee and all those kind of things. And and at the time, of course, you don't wish her to be harmed and you look after her, but you also know there's great learning in that. And, mm. and so I think it's about how do we cope with both? Mm. You know, how do we, because I think particularly when we start to talk about psychological well-being and and our psychological health you know we need to yeah there is no escaping grief or bereavement or sadness yeah adversity in all sorts you know everyone experiences adversity at different times in their life I think too I was thinking about it I I ran a um, board day on the weekend and someone said they were talking about values and you know we're talking about excellence and and someone put up their hand and said there's so much pressure on being perfect do we need Mm. to keep layering this with being perfect and I was like it's a really good conversation to have let's open this up (laughs) you know and I think that's so true there's I think we've swung so far to trying to make things perfect and have as much control over as many aspects as we can that there's very little room for human error but we need to make errors i think that sums it up well and and it's that sort of striving for perfection in life when Mm. you know perhaps and maybe your life's best understood ironically that you know a better life is one where you're not striving perfection but you're actually living and learning along the way you know i should be Um, fine then (laughs) because i'm making mistakes on a daily basis oh my god so did you go did you leave that industry when you went into social psychology I remember a good friend of mum and dad's when I started my consulting business sat down with me, yeah, very kindly sat down with me as a very experienced business person and, and a business mentor. And you know, the first thing I had to do, he said, was have a business plan. And, and I just couldn't get my head around that. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to sound like a walking or talking contradiction in this podcast, but yes, I get the need for a business plan. And I did have a broad plan, but at the same time, I wanted to see what emerged. Yes. I wanted to see where it could take us. To your point before, I was curious about what could happen. And so, you know, I originally started consulting in that sort of, you know, almost copying, pasting procedures, which was boring me to tears and achieving nothing. And that's where the study of social psychology came in. And it was really through that study. And at the same time, I, I did that. I started um, volunteering with Lifeline uh, in the Hunter region on their board because I wanted a, another – that was my real introduction to Lifeline It was a, and my first real introduction to volunteering at the time. I wanted something – in my work life that was not about an hourly rate and I was new to consulting so it sort of was really important to me that that there was a way not just to sort of give back but there was a way to do something that wasn't yeah as I said an hourly rate so didn't have a price tag attached that's a great way to put it didn't have the price tag yeah yeah and so what what happened you started with your consulting like did you spend are you still doing it like because now you're CEO of Lifeline. So, what's been happened between then and now? Yeah. So, the consulting started and it, and it just changed over time. So, it really led me to be able to go to organizations that were really interested in looking at things through another lens, not you know, completely different lens. There was a, you know, a a place for process, et cetera, as we've talked about. But, you know, wanted another lens who were curious themselves about how 
you know, a better understanding of people and their organizations. You know, people who are often frustrated and ask the question, you know, I've trained them in this, I've, I've instructed them in that, they're skilled in this, yet something still went wrong and why. Mm. And so, um, my consulting changed through those years and led me to study. Um, I, I realized the thing missing for me, well, I was always pretty good at conversations. I think you and I are probably aligned there. <laughs> we love chatting with people. <laughs> love chatting. But I've got to be frank, I was probably a better talker than listener at the time. And it just struck me that, you know, one of the things that was missing in the field was there was lots of instruction, there was lots of telling, but there was very little listening. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do something about this, I'm going to do something about this. So I went and studied counselling. And, you know, in that course of study, you learn very well to listen, you know, to reflect back what other people were saying. You also learn, or my experience was that you you're less about fixing people and you're actually about meeting them. You're actually about being there mm. alongside them. And I remember a person that I've learned a lot from is a guy called Graham Long who used to run the Wayside Chapel in Sydney for, I think, about 13 years. And Graham had a great saying, which I just resonates strongly with me, that people are not a problem to fix but someone to be met. I resonate so much when you say that. I used to, as a counsellor, say I have to – like. Sometimes there would be, I'd meet someone in the room and I'd think, oh, am I the right counsellor here? And then I remind myself that I need to find the part of them that that I can really resonate with and that I really like because I needed to ask more questions. I hadn't, in other words, hadn't met them yet. Like mm. I was making a judgment or I, something was going on for me in that moment. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about counselling. They teach you, really, give you really good training around how to remove yourself from the picture and be available for the person and be present for the person that's in front of you. And, and... <laughs> The conversation of the day, ask more questions. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think it's about, you know, and, and, and a big part of counselling is that unconditional positive regard for the other yeah. person. And it's, I am here for you in that moment. And so I don't think you can directly take that necessarily to a construction site or a manufacturing site. But I think there are skills that, that certainly in those industries we can teach leaders and particularly in the safety and risk and, and HR and, and many other fields, I think, to, to put that into their toolkit. It's, it's not the only way to go about it. You can't wander around in, a, in an emergency situation where there's a fire in a building saying, well, you know, what are the options we might explore? You know, there's a time and a place. But for me, it was bringing that into the toolkit. So, a, a better listening, being present to other people, helping them. Yeah, really, I mentioned before, I think in a lot of ways, workplaces were sort of anti-thinking because it's just a process for everything and people don't have to think. Well, yeah, I think ironically, we want more thinking yeah. you know, at, at the right times for the right things. And I think those skills around listening and, and being curious and inquiry, I think are really important skills to bring into the workplace. And a way to think about that is also it's just learning to flex your style. It's learning what can you bring in, like what can you have in your toolkit that you bring into the situation. And one situation, like you said, if there's a fire, you need to act. You know, that's a crisis situation that needs decisions made compared to you might walk into another situation where you're having a conversation with a colleague where perhaps that's not needed in that space. Like you can actually open it up and hold the floor for them to kind of work through it a little bit more themselves to come up with the answer, which is going to have more buy-in, which is going to get a better outcome. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think, yeah, so they're just, I think there's skills that you can learn that, and, and I think when people... When people are up, you know, a lot of people are up for those skills. They they realise that telling only gets you so far. They realise mm-hmm. that, you know, people really want to think and want to be present in the workplace, no matter what that workplace is. I think, you know, different in different workplaces. So, 
yeah, those skills can be really important. I think that you know, effectively, they're leadership skills, and I think that's that's one thing that I've learned, and and certainly taking in this role of CEO with Lifeline is. You know, if we're going to be good leaders, we also need to be present to the needs of others. We need to understand others and we need to importantly empower people. And, and maybe later in the podcast, I can share you a little bit about that model that we use in the in the Lifeline service. But it is all about empowering the person that, that calls us. And I think in many ways, that's what I think uh, leadership is about as well. You know, helping people find their best self, mm. not necessarily their perfect self, but their best self as we we're talking about before. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. You know, when I asked people about Lifeline, I did come into this conversation. I was like, have you called it? What has your experience been like? And for a lot of people, they they actually were like, I, I don't know what happens when I call. And I was mm-hmm. like, you're not alone in that space. But what a great conversation for you and I to have today around that. So maybe we can go in into that a little bit around talk to us about Lifeline first and then we're going to go in what it's like when you pick up the phone and call Lifeline. Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, I think Lifeline is uh, in March 2023 will be 60 years old. You know, we've been around a long time and in many ways has changed a lot in that time, but in many ways also hasn't. <laughs> in the ways it hasn't, it is, it is a place where people, anyone, anyone can ring Lifeline. We're a non-specialist service. We, we, you know, we answer the phone to everyone as long as it's safe for that person and as long as it's safe for our team. So you know, there might be a, a very small number of people who ring and, and uh, behave inappropriately, but that's a very small number. But mm. effectively, anyone can call Lifeline and it doesn't cost a cent. It's non-discriminatory and it's available 24 hours, seven days a week, every day of the year. So it's been around for a long time and at the heart of it is effectively yeah, listening. It is those skills we talked about before. It is, we use the word meeting. I think that's a, a really important thing is we meet people where they're at, at that mm. time when they ring. Yeah, that can mean many things to many different people. And we could talk a bit about, you know, who calls life on and what happens. Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, when I was a child, when you say it's been around for 60 years, I can vouch that it was around 40 years ago because I rang Lifeline as a child. I remember very clearly sitting in my parents' room whenever, you know, there had been a big blow up because I grew up in quite quite a a violent home. And Mm. so I would always think I need to speak to someone. I don't know if this is okay. I don't know if I'm safe. I don't know, you know. And I used to as a seven-year-old or nine-year-old, I remember I used to get that phone and I'd sit by the bed and I'd dial the number and I'd be sitting there just waiting for someone to answer the phone and straight away that safety that I felt personally just having someone else out there that I could reach in a moment of crisis. You know, sometimes I'd only talk for five minutes or ten minutes. It didn't have to be long, but it was just I'm not alone in this space and, you know, that that's why I love having this conversation because that was 40 years ago, giving away my age, maybe 35 years ago, but, yeah, it was so powerful I remember so distinctly those phone calls. I don't remember what the person said on the other side of the line, but I know that I was safe and that someone was there. So that that's the power of Lifeline. I think so. And in many ways, hearing that, that, that pleases me because it's not about what we would say. It's about how you felt. And I think yes. that's, that's a good experience for a person to call Lifeline is, yeah, we say all the time that this call is about you when you ring us. It's what you want out of it. It's 
what you're experiencing on that day and that moment, which might be different if you wanted to call another time. And so, yeah, I think that's the one of the real beauties of the service is that the heart is a person-centered approach to the person who's calling us. So, I'd imagine a lot of that comes because it's a volunteer-run organization on, as a whole, isn't it? Effectively, yes. So there are there are some paid crisis supporters on on some of the challenging overnight shifts, challenging to to get volunteers for between say midnight and yeah six a.m. But the majority of our crisis supporters right across the country, and there's some three and a half thousand people, uh, volunteer their time. And you know, I think there's something extraordinary in that that yeah. the giving of their time. To people who are sometimes in their darkest moments, not all the time. Yeah, some people are are ringing for a range of reasons, but people ring us in their darkest moments. And, you know, some people do call when they're feeling suicidal. To give of your time for those people at those moments, I think is just an extraordinary thing. And, um, yeah, something that I'm, I'm really proud of as the organization and something that I think is, is a rich and steep part of our history is that volunteerism. Mm, and something we're fighting for, you know, like to think that there's, did you say three and a half thousand volunteers? There's about three and a half thousand across the country. That Can we just take a moment and just acknowledge that, you know, that's pretty, that says a lot about the organisation, a lot about the people that you're working with. And yeah, I just think that's absolutely incredible. So what happens when someone calls it? Let's talk about if someone's going to pick up the phone, who... You've, you've said that anyone can call in any given moment. What happens for that person when they ring? Are you able to walk us through that? Yeah, sure. I, th- I think the best way to start that answer is to tell you that the person on the other end of the phone, whilst they are a volunteer, they've given almost 100 hours of their time before they're starting to enter in calls on their own without support. So there's a, there's a lot of training I was going to say, when you say 100 hours, you're, you're talking about the training that they receive in order to, before they p- start doing their calls. Yeah. So, there's there's a combination of e-learning and in-person learning, you know, some of the theory and the practice. There's lots and lots and lots of role plays around different scenarios. So, you know, I think one of the res- biggest responsibilities I have as a CEO is, is looking after our people. So, we start that right from the very start, making sure that people mm-hmm. are prepared for what might happen and the kind of calls that they might receive. So know that that people who answer the phone are well trained and well supported. That's that's a really important thing for people mm. to know. When you ring, we will greet you by saying this is Lifeline, may we help you. And I think that's a really important greeting. May we help you doesn't assume that we can. <laughs> it might not be the right time. Sometimes people don't continue the conversation. Sometimes people might want to speak to someone who sounds different to the person that answers. Maybe it's male, female, or you know, mm-hmm. what they feel uncomfortable. But when they, they pick up the phone, they call us, this is Lifeline, may we help you. From then on, it is about the other person. From then on, it is about what is your experience? What do you need? Where are you at today in this moment? And will the will the call worker prompt some of those questions? Because for some people, when they call up, they may not even know, right? They may know that they feel, they're feeling really alone in that moment, but they may not even have the words to describe it or have ever said those words out loud to anyone before. Oh, you you, you bet. And, and I think the crisis supporter that is there with you on the other end of the line has a range of you know, tools in their kit, so to speak. Sometimes the most important thing is just sitting together in silence. Mm. That can be a really powerful thing going, I'm here and take your time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because because in sometimes in life, you know, we're rushed through things or, you know, I need to know what's wrong. Actually, I need you to know that I'm here for you and whatever you need. So, so mm-hmm. silence can be a part of that. But the first part of our model that we call it, that people sort of have in mind is we have to connect. So, so our job will be to, to sit there and, and hear your story as much as you want to share. Um, and, and for some people, that's, that's a lot. For some people, it is a telling a story for the first time. For some people, it might be just what's happening in the next 15 minutes. They're anxious about a meeting or a, an appointment or whatever it might be, or they've seen a news story. It, it, you know, there's so many reasons. So yes, the crisis supporter will sit there and listen and we'll, we'll prompt with some questions, but really it's about connecting at the start and, and hearing what's going on for people. And then yeah, the next part is that we really want to know how you're feeling and, and we'll often say, how does that feel? You know, I can hear that you might be really angry or sad or frustrated or alone or and that's just part of building rapport and saying, you know, I'm hearing you. Mm. And sometimes we don't get that right. <laughs> sometimes it might be, oh, we're sounding really frustrated. No, actually I'm not, but that's okay because it means I'm still listening and I'm I'm there for them. So it's not a matter of sort of you know diagnosing and getting things right. It's a matter of sitting alongside and and just hearing the other person. You know, a good call is one where people feel heard and feel attended to, if you like. And I was thinking there when you said that, that might be something just to highlight is that it's not about diagnosing. You know, this is my understanding, so please correct me if I've got this wrong, but from what you're saying, it's not about us saying this is what's going on and this is what we need to happen. It's about being, listening, how can we best support you in this moment? Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's a crisis and connection service, not a not a diagnosis. And for some people that can be frustrating. Some people want to ring and say, I've got this going on. Is this right or is it wrong? Or am I normal? Or are these normal feelings? Or, you know, can you tell me what's why I'm feeling this way? And, and our crisis supporters, while some might be psychologists or counselors or some other medical profession in that role, their job is to, to help people be heard and, and mm. if needed, provide a referral. If someone is saying, this, I think I might have a problem with addiction. And, and this is the first time I've, I'm saying it out loud and, my God, I do have a problem with addiction or something. You know, they've really come to this recognition and then we can provide a referral for a specialist service that can then support them if that's what they want. Do you also give, because um, I know there's some resources on Lifeline, like if you go on the website, there's some really great frequently asked questions and fact sheets around things like depression, suicide, how to manage a community and grief, like so many. If you haven't been on there to have a look, I'd, I'd definitely suggest that everyone goes on and has a look. But if someone's called up and they, for example, want to know more around anxiety and some strategies that they can use, is the crisis worker able to help guide them to some spots? Is that something that's part of the you role? Bet. Yeah, you bet. And, 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 and a lot of our calls, there will be a referral to either a specialist service that we can look up on a service finder and, and provide details to, or it might be, as you say, a lot of really good websites, a lot of really good apps. For example, yeah, there's a, there are some really good apps now that people can use for safety planning or for mindfulness mm. or whatever their need might be. And um, so, so it is a really, I guess, in, for, for many people, it can be a, a turning point you know, to turn the road to another path. And, you know, the realisation can come through a conversation or, or lead to that conversation. So, you know, I think it's a really important part of it. And I can imagine the other question that people are going to ask now is, are they going to know who I am? You know, do I need to give my name? Are they like, what happens if I decide I want to hang up? It's a great question. And I think 
aside from being non-discriminatory and available 24-7 every day of the year, the other thing that I think is an important part of the service is that it's anonymous. Mm-hmm. So you don't give your name? I mean, people can tell us their name if they want to. Some people do. We don't need to fact check that. You don't need to provide your Medicare card or your credit card to, to verify who you are. This is important information though, right? Because some that's one of the barriers between people calling. It really is. And and I want people to know that, you know, when you call, you know, we won't give our name either. You know, so it's 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 about a one off conversation with a person at the time. And that's a really important part about what it is, you know. I I mean when you call Lifeline, basically you go into a queue for the next available person right around the country. So if I could be calling on the East Coast and be answered by somebody working in Western Australia or in a, wherever it might be. So that's an important part. And, and I think that helps with the non-judgment. Mm. For me as a child, it was really helpful. You know, I was really worried that you were going to come to my home, you mm. know, but I needed mm. to talk to someone. So, mm. it was really it was really wonderful to know that I could ring and have a conversation at that time. I mean, things might have changed now around children protection. And I guess that's a good question for us to ask here mm. as well. Domestic violence and safety in the home, what happens and when do we escalate it? But for me back then, that's what I needed. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, good questions to ask about those things. But yes, I, I just yeah emphasise that it's a confidential uh, conversation that that really is about making sure people feel comfortable that they can share those moments. Yeah, those those big moments in life, and I mean big moments for those people at that time, whatever it is, mm. to share with someone in confidence and maybe be the first step toward help. Um, towards mm. change. I think it's a big responsibility, but I think it's also a really wonderful thing about our service is that that can be the place. You know, it's often hard to, to talk to your loved ones and your family and, and stigma is a real thing in many mental illnesses. It's certainly, you know, with things like addiction, with, you know, sexual assault, as you say, if it's been child sexual assault or domestic and family violence, those things mm-hmm. often come with shame. And, um, you know, if we can be a first point in uh, for that person to to say, here's the story and here's how I feel and I'm ready for help now, that, that'd that be a wonderful outcome for a call. And sometimes it's planting that seed that someone else will water later in life. You know, sometimes it's not, it's just about let's let's be here for that person so that one day when they're ready, they know they can take the next stop, step and there's support there for them. So we often talk about not seeing the ripple effect, you know, but it's so huge. I really do believe that. I, it's one of the things I love about Lifeline. I think you will never know exactly the change you're making, the impact you're having, but absolutely making it on a daily basis, hourly, minute by minute. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really interesting thing. It's probably one of the really good parts about the service but can be frustrating as well because the reality is once that conversation finishes, we don't know what happens next. And, yeah, yeah we get many, yeah, much good feedback and yeah, lovely ends to conversations to say, you know, I've never felt heard like that before or no one's ever listened to me or I feel like I've got a weight off my shoulders. That's great. The reality is when that phone call finishes, you know, we don't know what happens next, but I think that mm. that adds to the service. And, yeah, you're talking about safety before. That, I was just thinking yeah. that then as you were saying that around safety and I guess it's different in different scenarios but that would be helpful when does it get escalated and and do people know if they're on the line that it's being escalated 
Yeah, probably answer the second question first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are a small number of scenarios where you know there's there's imminent danger or imminent harm, and certainly if there was an indication that there was imminent harm, our approach again is to be person centred. So yes, we will talk with the person all the way through whatever might be the case. But you know, if someone's in imminent danger, you know, we can contact emergency services through our systems where needed. But the reality is that that happens on a very small number of occasions for the Mm. calls that we. There's yeah, 1.1 million calls a year, and, and I don't know the percentage, but it you know to be very small in single-digit percentages of calls that sort of get escalated is as you described. But yeah, people no, need to know that they're safe with us. You know, that's that's a decision we'd usually make together with the person. You know, unless there was a, uh, and again, I've not experienced this thankfully personally, but you know, if there was a, some clear indication of imminent danger in the background, yeah. for example, then yeah. Like if there's a violent situation happening in the home in that moment um, and we needed to get that person safe in that very moment. Yeah. And and even even in that scenario, our absolute focus is on the person who has called us. That is our primary focus is that person, how are they doing? They have called. And, um, yeah, some people also call you, I, I thought of this before when you asked, because they're worried about other people. <laughs> you know, my friend is has mm. told me they're suicidal and I've got no idea what yes. I do next. Of course. Or my child is, you know, anxious or worried or not talking or you know, whatever the scenario might be. And there's, there's thousands of scenarios. So we are there for, if, if that's the scenario for you as well, you're worried about someone else, then Lifeline can be a support for you. And, and again, can be a source of referral to other services that we've got in our finder. Yeah, that's that's a really important point, I think, to make is that it doesn't have to just be about you. It can be if you're concerned about someone else. I guess the one that's comes up a lot in our podcast in particular is around suicide. So maybe it's also helpful just to get clear on that as well. If someone does ring and they are suicidal, what happens in that process once you've listened? Do you need to have a conversation with someone else or what does that look like? Yeah, I think, and, and I'm sure you'll do this constantly through the the notes as well. But just as we talk about suicide, I might just mention our 13, 11, 14 number. So, so if it is triggering yes. for people, that's the number to call. But the, the sort of simple answer to that question is if someone is having thoughts of suicide, and that's not uncommon. And when people call Lifeline, there can be people having thoughts of suicide. Firstly, we ask directly the question of every caller. Yeah, are you having thoughts of suicide? Have you thought about killing yourself? And if the answer is yes, then the next question is around do they have a plan in place for that? There are people, and I've learned this from our, used to be our board chair, is now Lifeline patron, John Brogdon, who I, I admire. Um, he shares his living experience with both suicide attempt and suicidality regularly. And he talks, and there's a lot of talk in our sector around the value of lived experience as so someone who's, mm. who's lived through that. And he, and other people talk about this too, but he certainly introduced it to me, was talking about living experience. And John will tell you uh, and, and speaks openly about this, that he has you know, regular thoughts of suicidality. So, so there are many people who are having thoughts of suicide regularly in their lives that are not necessarily going to take their life immediately. Mm. So that's the first thing is, you know, there are many people who are having thoughts of suicide. We are there to sit there alongside them in those 
as they're having those thoughts in those moments. The second is is if they do have a plan in place, then we help them develop a, a safety plan effectively. So, yeah, we will encourage that person. They will often know what is best for them. Sometimes it is by talking to somebody else that those things become evident and clear. So, our, our role, if you like, is to, again, be person-centered, put the person who's calling us in, at the front of the conversation and say, well, what works for you? And that conversation is different for every person, obviously, but it's about our phrase we use, what what can we do to be safe for now? So, you know, now might be the next couple of minutes, now might be the next half a day, day, week, month, depending on what the scenario is for the person. So, yeah, they may have been having a, a terrible time with something. There's a certain scenario that's come up to play. So, it's about getting away from that scenario or away from a person or whatever it might be. So, very much our approach is safe for now. Yeah. And do you know what? I think that is invaluable even for our listeners because I've had a lot of DMs about what do I say? What do I ask? What do I do if there's someone in my world that I'm concerned about? And it was always reach out and, and ask the question if you're not sure, like, you know, get professional help. In, but but having those questions as well is something that I do encourage just in every day. If you are concerned about someone, ask, do, are they suicidal? Have they got a plan? What can we do right now to keep you safe? And, you know, separate to being lifeline, then it's like, well, who else can I call in here that needs to come? But what we're hearing here with lifeline is you don't necessarily have to call someone else because it's about being there with that moment and the the whole, I guess, like, the reason why Lifeline is there is not for people to not have to worry so much that every time they say something that there's going to be this ongoing tidal wave, which is what people worry about. If mm. I say out loud what's actually going on in my world right now, mm. I'm going to start a chain of events I can't stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we do need services that are there in that initial very first moment of crisis or if, like you said, you're going through something and it's around anxiety, around a job interview or whatever it is for you, having that first moment of being able to talk to someone and at least start to work it out in your head. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. And just to pick up on the point there for your listeners, you know, if you are worried about someone and, and there may be good reason to be worried, that they're, they're, maybe their behaviours change. They're normally happy and they're sad or they're sad and they're happy. And that can happen. It can be someone who's who's really sad all of a sudden has said, okay, I'm, I'm thinking of taking my life and there's a, there's a weight lifted and they can appear happier mm-hmm. or it could be people who are normally disorganised to become organised and get their affairs into order. So, if you're noticing Noticing un- unusual behaviours, then asking someone directly the question, please don't be concerned about it. Ask the question directly, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Avoid saying things like, uh, you're not thinking of doing something silly. Because if that person's feeling really down already and now they think you think they're silly, you may well not be helping. So be direct. There's a bunch of research that backs this up that says, and people worry about being direct and asking that question, thinking, oh, I'm putting the thoughts into someone's mind. Please trust me, there's been a bunch of research that's been done over many years that says that's not the case. Very, very small percentage of people might get upset that you ask that question. Most likely, though, people will say, take it as a sign that you care and that you're noticing. Mm, and I'm just thinking through that, Rob. I don't know that anyone, I ask that question a lot. I think some people are like, their reaction I often experience is like, oh, no, 
no, no, you know, as in like, no, that's not where I'm at. And then I can go, okay, well, let's talk about where you are at. But I'm just trying to think if I've ever had someone actually get upset. And they, of course they can, right? Because we're humans and we're all different and we're all yep. in a different stage. But yeah, I think that that's a good conversation to have around that that may happen. And, and most of the time it doesn't, but still ask the question. Yeah, and and you're asking for a reason. So as I yeah, very very rarely does do people get upset or disappointed to ask that question. But I'd rather ask it if I was worried than let it be um, because I was worried about the response. But yeah, most of the time people will take it as a sign that you care because it's usually accompanied with I've been noticing this. <laughs> you know, I'm I've been looking at this and I'm seeing this, and which is a sign that you care about others. Yeah, and I was thinking back to the podcast with Maddie. He lost his dad to suicide, and he spoke about, and it's really upfront, but I think it's it is Im- really important that we say it. Is he he said ask the question and don't regret the funeral the next. You know, like you might find it hard to ask the question now, but you're going to find it a lot harder sitting in the funeral. So mm. as blunt as that is to say that now, and I'm even saying it thinking, oh, God, <laughs> you mm. know, but I think it's true. If you're worried that that question is hard, know that it's it can be harder tomorrow if you don't. Mm. And I think that, um, I mean, you remind me of another group of people that ring life on are those who've lost one to someone to suicide yeah. because, you know, all, you know, all death is often tragic and, Often un- unexpected or even if you unexplained. were expecting unexplained. The, so many questions with suicide, so many. And people feel ashamed. They feel to blame. You know, there's a whole bunch of emotions that people will go through, not not always rationally. You know, they're very quick, often responses to a really tragic circumstance. So, mm. you know, to pick up the phone and to talk to someone who's happy to have a conversation, and when I say happy, is is trained and is there to mm. have a conversation about suicide. If you've lost someone, then then often Lifeline can be a great support for you as well just to talk through. We won't have the answers to all of your questions, I'll guarantee it, but we will sit there and listen and we can work through some of those questions together and, yeah, that can often be a great support for people. And. One of the questions that I've heard people ask over the years is, will they know who I am if I ring back? And I think that, I mean, we've spoken about this already. It's mm. it probably, they won't because it's anonymous. And when you call up, when you hang up, it's, you'll get someone different next time. But I think that that is still a question that gets raised. Mm. That is true. And for some people, it could be frustrating. You know, I've just talked to somebody and tomorrow I'm ringing, I'm getting somebody else. But that's mm-hmm. the very nature of our service. It is one-off. And Lifeline in the future, could it have a different model? Yeah. We're now doing text 24-7 we wouldn't have done before. And there's a whole bunch of you know, weird and wacky technological things that, that could happen that, that might mean that the people that call us more regularly you know, may over time get a different service we've been piloting things like that with um, people who call us regularly to see if a more continuity of of conversation might be helpful for those people and that was a pilot that was run earlier this year and you just mentioned text message let's just Mm. touch on that because this is new and exciting and fabulous can you tell us a little bit about the text messaging service yeah look i'm a huge fan of, of having this available. So it's the same number effectively. So it's 0477 because of text and then 131114. So the same as the phone number. And I think that this is a, at the heart of the service is the same. So all of the things that I've described that we do, uh, listening, connecting, being about you and your feelings if you've messaged us, it's just a different form. And you can imagine that this is a more attractive for people who can't find the space to talk or you can imagine sitting there in the lounge room with your family, friends, or whatever it might be, 
not in a position to talk, but you could be texting Lifeline watching the footy or, you know, home and away. Or even the example that I gave when I was a child, I was so worried that my mum and dad were going to hear me when I was ringing to sit in a room and to be able to text. It would have been safer, you know. So I, I think that safety can come in there as well. You bet. And, and scenarios where people might be experiencing domestic and family violence, that might be a better way to connect with Lifeline. Mm. So, look, I think it's a terrific service. It's now 24-7 along with the phone service. Again, manned by lots of volunteers who give up their time for others. And whilst it is a different service, you can imagine, you know, like we do in short messaging, is that, you know, the, the conversations often get to the heart of things much more quickly in a tech service. I think it's a great initiative for Lifeline. We also have a chat service, which you can do on the website as well. But, you know, again, in, in the future of Lifeline, I can imagine that there could be all sorts of opportunities to chat via social media channels, not just via mm. SMS, but it could be, you know, you know, WhatsApp and other social yeah. channels as well. By the so, so, you know, they're the things that I'm excited about. The future is the, the different channels that people might be able to reach out to Lifeline on and, and be able to, to chat through. And I want to touch a little bit more on the volunteers, but before we go to that, are there other questions that you get asked regularly by people that they're curious about with Lifeline? Like I've asked a few here now, but there might be other questions that you get asked often or that you know if Lifeline knows because they get asked it all the time that we haven't spoken about. Mm, I think people are genuinely curious about the people on the end of the telephone and we've talked about that a lot. I just want to say, I mean, if any of those people are listening and there's a good chance because there's three and a half thousand of them across Australia that they may be listening. Firstly, thank you. And secondly, it's a unique kind of or form of, of, of volunteering. You know, I think if I'm a surf lifesaver, you know, I'm down at the beach and, and working effectively as a team. You know, if I'm at the Bunnings barbecue on the weekend, volunteering my time again, I'm usually with the team. And I think those, yeah, those two examples and many, many others are wonderful. I think they're really great. And, and Australia and our world couldn't get by without volunteering. But I think one of the really unique things about life finding is that this is uh, something that you, you know, most people give four hours a week or four hours a fortnight to sit with people in their darkest moments or some of the people who call us in their darkest moments, do all the training we've already talked about and sit there one-on-one. -on -one. You know, it's not necessarily mm -hmm. a social thing. Although, you know, we gather in our centres and we aim to have social events and engagement with our volunteers. It's very much a one-on-one -on -one activity. So I think there's a lot that people give. The people that are on the end of the telephones, that the thing that I hear a lot from our volunteers is they get as much as they give that being able to be there and meet people is a is a feeling of real social connection which we all crave. So I think, you know, whilst the conversation sometimes can be tough and, you know, as we work through, there's a lot of times where people, you know, are feeling better at the end and there's something really special about that. Well, it's a privilege to be beside someone in their story. I really I really mean that, you know, and that was my experience as a counsellor and it's a real honour to sit beside someone and to be I, in that I space with them. It really is. And we often talk, and these are not my words again, it's, um, you know, I've alert this over the years, but uh, people talk about sitting in the mud with people, not pulling mm, them out of the mud. That's a you know? great way of describing it. I think it is because our natural tendency is, hey, I'll pull you out of the mud. I can see you're in the mud. You can't see you're in the mud. I can. And here's some rope and let's get you and like, you know, straight away, let's get all the, <laughs> everyone come over and help rather than just being there for a little while. Being there, you know, and, and they'll get themselves out of the mud potentially. And maybe that just happens by us sitting alongside them, getting our feet dirty in the mud. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the other, just reminding when you ask questions, people say, well, you know, 
what people don't necessarily make it as crisis supporters and and it's people and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this but people who who really can't resist that fixing mm. and i think that's people and and i've known a few people now who've gone almost all the way through our training and said i have learnt so much i am going to take that into my life and that is just you know really life changing but i can't resist pulling people out of the mud if you like and yeah and and that's okay. That there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that because it takes a lot to be able to sit beside and and hear pain and and not do something actively about it. It's almost counterintuitive in our sort of almost our, our current culture. So you know, as I, I have my hat off to our crisis supporters who do that. And I think it's when you've, I guess, had a number of conversations, and if you've ever been lucky enough to hear what those conversations have meant to people over time, you learn that that is more than enough. Mm. It can be way more powerful than you. I, I think people, this is all of us, I think, <laughs> often we crave to be heard. We crave to belong. Mm. And and a big part, you know, we are social creatures, if you like. And a big part about what we do is we help people feel like they belong somewhere, even if it's in that moment for, for whatever length that conversation is, is they feel like they belong and they're there with someone else. So, you know, a very powerful thing and a very simple act of picking up a telephone. Mm. And let's talk about the volunteers because that's one way we can help, right? Is mm-hmm. and I want to want to. I'm going to ask you that afterwards. Is how can we best help for the listeners that are listening now? But with the volunteers, it costs a lot of money to train a volunteer. It, it sure does. I remember when I talked to I talked regularly to other businesses and CEOs of organisations and uh, tell them that yeah, seventy percent or more of our labour is volunteers, if you like, and they pay. Oh, it must be easy to run. Well, it's not because Mm-mm. there's a huge, huge responsibility that that I certainly feel and, and our team feel to look after our team, to make sure the volunteers are trained well, to make sure that they're consistently, you know, there's a check-in and check-out at every shift. There's regular professional and personal development and group supervision. And, you know, it, it really is a significant commitment, both the person and the organisation. So I think it, it's, you know, that, that is a, the biggest responsibility I have. But it, it costs us around $3,500 to train every crisis supporter to get on the, on the telephones. And then there's ongoing cost, obviously, of the supervision and support that we provide. So, you know, it's the, the other big part of the job that I've learned a lot about in the last few years is, is the fundraising in order to do that. And yeah, but it's important because we won't compromise on, on the quality and we won't compromise on looking after our team. It's just too important. So, yeah, it's a big commitment. You made me think about our volunteers, I think this is the best way I could sum them up. Uh, a good friend of mine here in, in Newcastle, and I'll say his name because I'm really proud of this and I'd like to recognise him. His name's Josh Hewitt. Josh is a good friend of Lifeline, a good friend of mine, and has openly said that he's called Lifeline. And he says, sometimes that you just need the kindness of strangers and they are the kindest of strangers. And and I just think it's it's just a really lovely way to sum up. And make me cry. <laughs> our service, yeah. Oh my God. I, Josh often does that. He's and Josh lost his brother, uh, Jake, to suicide, and um, <sighs> he's a really reflective guy. But I think that really sums it up. And and he's a, a that's a great example. I think you know, kindest. Yes. Of strangers is the way I think about our volunteers. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking this is the first podcast I haven't cried in. <laughs> but I just did. <laughs> it's um, just, but that's so beautiful and it's so true. And you know, we've we've spoken about the volunteers and we've spoken about that's how most of the organisation is run. And 
you know, so if someone is listening and they're thinking, well, maybe, maybe I could be a volunteer or maybe I want to know more about what that could look like or Mm -hmm. what that would involve in my world, what, where do they go? How do they find this out? Yeah, it's a good question. So, Lifeline has uh, around 40 plus centres around the country. So, I'd encourage you to Google your local Lifeline centre or go to lifeline.org.au, which is the national website, and it can point you to your local centre. Our volunteering on our phone service is all done through our local centres. So, you contact your local centre. We are starting to do pilot of remote work where people don't have to come into a sort of a building to do that. And that will grow over time. We've just got the technology and we're working out the ways we can take care of our team for that. Obviously, it has to be a safe space and good internet, etc. And then if you want to be one of our text volunteers, you'll find a place, uh, the, the place to do that on our lifeline.org.au website where you can contact them directly to be a text volunteer and, that, and those people all work remotely mm-hmm. so they don't come into a centre. So there's sort of two, two ways to do that there. And if they do, if they are interested, they can do... Do a little 90-minute or two-hour kind of meeting where they get told about all the logistics, can't they? So they can kind of book into that and get all the information before they commit because, as you said, it's a big commitment for the individual that's coming up to be a volunteer and it's a big commitment from the organisation to meet them as well. So making sure that that's a match and making sure that people know what's involved and how they're looked after in that process. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's important, you know, we want to make sure that that they understand right up front what it's about and what they can be exposed to. So yes, we have that meeting. We're pretty frank in that meeting. We ask lots of good questions. We do surveys and et cetera of people um, before they come in so that, you know, it's safe for them. And that's an important part of, of what we do overall. And if someone is perhaps like, how else can I help? But I'm not necessarily, well, the volunteer road's not necessarily right for me right now or, or may never be. How else could they help? Yeah, I think two, two ways. I mean, if, if volunteering on the phones is not for you, we have lots of retail shops, our op shops around the country. So volunteering there may be a, a way that is more appropriate or better suited for you. And of course, you know, whilst we receive significant and important government funding, and we do from particularly the federal government and the state governments, a lot of that funds uh, the infrastructure. So, that, you know, you can imagine, you know, all the communications and the computers and systems that sit behind a national crisis support service that's both voice and, and text. So, that funding effectively covers the cost of the infrastructure and all those and the best practice and the research that sits behind all of the practice that we do, which is critical and is important that we keep up to date. And then effectively, the local centres, some of that funding comes through to the local centres to to support the crisis supporters, but we have to fund more than 50% of that ourselves throughout the region. So, I know that you're in the New England region and we're, we're looking to looking, be opening yeah. a centre. In fact, I, I hope this time in 12 months' time, I'm talking about two new centres, perhaps one in Armadale and one in Tamworth, where people can come and be crisis supporters. So I'm yes. super excited about that. Watch and, um, this space, everyone. We will keep you posted. <laughs> you bet. You bet. So there's many ways that people could donate. You can certainly do that through our website that I've mentioned before. I'm sure it'll be in the, um, in the notes mm-hmm. or your local centre. Look them up on and, and you can support local activities. And I know you being in the, in the New England region, and I'm super excited about possibilities coming up. We have our own uh, new New England website, so newengland.lifeline.org.au or check out our socials and you can donate to help us get Lifeline back up and running in the New England region and our centres. So if that's something that your listeners are um, interested in doing, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, we will pop that in the show notes. I'll pop that in our Facebook group challenges that change us because, you know, the difference that it could make if 
if we can get these centres up, it means that more people can get trained as volunteers, which means we have more people on the end of the line when someone calls or someone texts because I think is it right, Rob, to say that there's a phone call every 30 seconds? Is that right? That, that's that's true. And, and you know, that helps us get to the more of those calls because at the moment there are calls that go unanswered and, and that, to me, that's tragic and, and that's – I'm driven by making sure that we we do our best to pick up the phone to everyone that calls us. And that really is about having volunteers. And that was one of the things I didn't ask. Is there a huge waiting time when people call? It's a couple of minutes generally, isn't it? Because that it might depends. be another question they're wondering. Yeah, it, it's a good question. And it depends on the time of the day and, and the need. So, you know, there are there are times where there are more calls than others. There are certain scenarios where people, you know, maybe there's public events where there's more demand. So, you know, typically people won't have to wait too long. But if they do, you know, I encourage them if they can stay on the line, we will get to you. You know, we, we would do our very best to get to you as you can. You know, the other thing that I think is really important about volunteers is not only are you a volunteer on the telephones, but you bring and take those skills into your community, to your families and your workplaces. And I think that's another extraordinary thing about our, our crisis supporters is, you know, beyond the telephone, they have got, they take those skills, they take that philosophy of meeting people and being there for them into their communities and, and workplaces and families. And I think that's cool. I think that's a really good point as well because it's one of the things that I hear often is just the training is so rigorous and so amazing and, you know, just as a mother of three young girls and as a wife and as a business owner and a leader, I'm like, who wouldn't want those skills, right? Like, <laughs> can't learn enough about it. I, You know, I do my undergrad in psych and a postgrad in emotionally focused therapy and I guarantee you if I was to go and do the training, I would be learning something every minute of the training. And it changes with the research. You've got an organisation that can be up to date with the research and, you know, especially with the trends that happen. Like we know social media is huge at the moment. That wasn't when I was younger. So I'm out of touch with that stuff. My kids are coming through like that. And so they're some of the, I guess, the benefits that we haven't spoken about with being a volunteer is you don't unlearn what you know. So you get to take that with you into all aspects of your life and your family and your friends. You bet. I, I think it's they are so transferable, those skills. And I, you know, mm. so yes, it, it will help you. I mean, a, a big part of the start of our training is self awareness. Who are you? What are the things well, you that you need that, right? You bet. So if nothing alone, you learn a lot more about yourself. You know, that, that's such a great part of our training and, and part of our overall philosophy. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of a couple of questions because we are going to have to finish up soon. But the first one that I'm thinking about is what would you say over the time that you've been with Lifeline on the phones particularly? I know as CEO, it would, there would be lots of stories there, but I guess being a crisis support worker, what have you gained from that experience? Mm, almost immeasurable. You know, I think that's, that's something I'll continue to reflect on. But I, I, I feel like I'm a much better in my relationships because I'm open to questions. I, I know I'm a better listener. Yeah. If, if nothing else, I know when I'm interrupting where I used to just interrupt before and say, oh, I've got the solution for you. I, that, it just it stands out to me now when I'm not when, – you know, when I move to fixing mode as opposed to meeting mode. So, it just stands out. I'm not saying I don't do it because I'm definitely I was not just a- about to say, <laughs> it's funny you should say that because even in this podcast, I've noticed me like dropping and I'm like, well, that's not needed here. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily um, stop the behaviour but it, it gets you more aware of it and sometimes you can either pause or you can know to go left or to go to right. Or <laughs> I was only thinking that earlier. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't need to say anything there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think the other thing is um, 
you know, reflection and sort of sitting down, you know, after a, after a shift, you know, we do a debrief and what's sitting with you, you know, is there anything that triggered you or, yeah, so there's a real connection and care for me as a crisis supporter. So, mm. what I love about it is the person that's doing that, in my day job, I'm the CEO, but when I'm a crisis supporter, I'm a crisis supporter and that person is supporting me and I, you know, that's sort of reciprocal. It's just a really great part of the relationship that I'm in a particular role and I think that that ironically helps me in my day job as well. So there's a, a really nice reciprocation there as well. And not many CEOs would be on the front line like you are. I, that was one thing that really struck me when we first had the conversation. I was like, oh, my God, like that's just incredible that you're still doing the phones and, you know, because you could easily step away from that, I'd imagine. Not not personally, it's probably part of who you are. But I, so when I say easily step away, I mean from a like time management perspective. Yeah, oh, look, and, and I can give you a list of several references that will attest that I'm no perfect human being. You know, what What I think is um, in the last two years of COVID, yeah, there's been times where I've had to put boundaries and I haven't been able to volunteer as well. So, you know, I think it is a very important part of what I do. I get a lot from it in that, what I talked about before, reciprocating. I, I feel like I could connect with people, but at the same time, there've been times where I've had to, to not do the telephones as well. You know, mm-hmm. I've recognised that I'm not in, you know, that there's a lot going on or I'm not in the right, position or I'm not ready to be meeting people today because I'm flustered or tired or so I think it's a very human humanizing experience and I think that because I you know I'd hate listeners to think oh wow yeah there are times where I can't do that there are times Mm. where irrespective of my day job it's it's you know how I'm feeling at the time or what's going on and so it's a really you know as I said before the self-awareness is to know who you are in a moment or at least know better who you are I think it's a lifelong journey to know who you are and that's been really helpful for me to know when to sort of turn on and turn off and be available or not. And and if I can't be present with people, then I won't pretend I can Mm. in that scenario. (laughs) Yeah. And Rob, thinking back to the young teenager that was at school (laughs) and, you know, just starting out on his adulthood journey, do you have any advice for that young Rob? You know what? I I say we talked about it right at the very start and, and I think it's held me in good stead and I'm really happy. Is Be curious. You know, I think, the minute you think you know everything, you don't know anything. So, yes. I think, yeah, the smarter you are, the more you know you don't know, whatever. You know, yeah, we could go on with the cliches, but I think it's, you know, be in life, be curious. You know, I think questions, not necessarily for answers, but for further exploring and, and critical thinking. I think those things, young Rob, will hold you in good stead if you do it. So, I think that's probably mm. my, my advice to younger self is, you know, that curious nature. And I think that, that is all about learning. Mm. And like I'm just thinking as you say that, where I get myself in the muck or realise that maybe perhaps that wasn't done the best way is always when I'm doing more talking and less listening or when I'm not <laughs> listening to truly understand. Mm. You know, I'm listening to work out what I'm going to say next. Mm. And I think that's what really when I reflect back I think, oh, I know exactly what happened in that moment. If I just was there and asked a few more questions and asked the next you know, and tell me more about that or what happened there or peel back that onion a little bit more, the conversation will look completely different. And and it's funny, I think, and also don't be hard on ourselves. I think our society, again, I mentioned Graham Long earlier who ran the Wayside Chapel. This is sort of his saying, but yeah, we've almost got the privatisation of ourself. You know, there's this individualism in our in our current society that sort of almost force, you know, our social media is about likes and mm. those kind of, th- yeah, that like button is the worst invention in the world, you know? Mm. So I think 
we can be hard on ourselves about that, but I, I think it's hard to break away from that individualism in our world. Now we're sold things all the time and now everything is about constantly being on and being the best. And we talked about perfectionism before. So, yeah, I think if, goodness, if we can be kind to ourselves and just go, yeah, there's, if we can be curious where we can, if we're not, maybe there's reasons why we're not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay too. You know, it is okay <laughs> you, don't, too. you don't have to get it right all the time. <laughs> well, it's just a privilege. If someone had told me when I was, you know, seven or 10 that I'd be on the Zoom talking to the CEO of Lifeline one day and that they'd still be going like, I just think, wow, you know, I'm here today because of what you guys do, mm. you know, and so to be here having this conversation is a privilege and I'm very, I feel very blessed to be able to be in the room having this conversation and hopefully This allows more people to pick up the phone if that's what's right for them, send a text if that's what's right, volunteer if you think you have capacity for that, even just, you know, like we said, get curious, get curious about the volunteer, like maybe just look into it, maybe just you don't have to commit right now but maybe just have a look at what it would involve or if we can donate and get this going in the New England area, wow, that would be amazing. So I will keep everyone posted on all of that. I love to finish the podcast though with... Who in your world or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Belly laugh. I, I, I love the Australian movie The Castle. And so, <laughs> I, when I when I I can look at and I won't I won't say the words. Don't worry. Uh, when I look at a photocopier and it's not working, that makes me laugh. As uh, <laughs> for those who know the, the the movie, Dennis Denudo might have too. But uh, you know, for me, it's it's quintessential Aussie. But it's down to earth. There's there's so much in that that I can relate to. I think the funniest moments are when my brother and I are sitting there and just replaying almost the whole video without it playing. We know the words so much. So I think it's the castle for me. <laughs> And it's always so good in these podcasts because you see the seriousness nature of both me and whoever it is I'm interviewing, like we're in it, right? We're in the thick of it Mm -hmm. when we're chatting and then all of a sudden I ask this question and there's these big smiles on the screen and so I hope all the listeners have the biggest smiles like we do as well. And also I just want to say to everyone, and I'll put this in the end as well, but if, if you find it all throughout today that anything feels like it's been triggering or, you know, you do just want to reach out and have a chat, please pick up the phone to Lifeline one three double one one four or the tech service 0477-13114. They are there 24-7 and they're there for you. So pick up the line, send a text and thank you for giving up your time today, Robin, coming on the podcast. It's been terrific and, and hopefully, you know, we've shed the light on, on what Lifeline does, what our amazing people do and, you know, I, as you said, pick up the phone, give us a call. But been lovely to share a conversation with you too, Ali. So thanks for the invitation. I really hope this conversation was helpful. I would love to know your takeaways if you can pop them in our Facebook community, Challenges That Change Us. Rob mentioned the tech service and I just want to give you the number in case you haven't already saved it in your phone. It is 0477131114. I took so much away from this conversation. Firstly, I went straight on and signed up as a crisis support worker. This is something that I've thought about doing for a long, long time and I actually have no idea why it has taken me so long to press the button. The training will be invaluable, but imagine if every fortnight when we do a shift, we could save someone's life or bridge that gap of loneliness. I really love the quote, a person is not a problem to fix, but someone to be met. If you like this episode and you're finding value in the podcast, is it okay if I get you to pop on and leave a rating and review? 
I love seeing what's landing for people and it really does inspire me to go out and find just the right guest for you. These reviews are also one of the really important ways we spread the message and we reach more people. Thank you everyone for your time today and I'm really looking forward to next week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 